The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Can Trump win another four years? Yes. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, July 11th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has dug in. No impeachment, she says. Not worth it, she says. Impeachment will only serve to re-elect Trump, she says. Beat him in 2020 and then lock him up, she says. That would make half of America happy, assuming it turns out that way. But what if it doesn't? What if the clever, experienced, successful stateswoman is wrong and after no effort to impeach him, he wins re-election? The latest polls do show Trump trailing all of his Democratic challengers, but except in Biden's case, it's a virtual tie. And in the upper Midwestern states that are key to winning the Electoral College vote, Trump's support remains as strong as ever. As low as Trump's approval ratings may be nationally, they're at 50% or higher in just enough states to again win him the Electoral College race. In short, Trump has a clear path to another four years in 2020 as things stand today. Washington Post columnist Henry Olson points out that this week's poll results show that Trump's popularity is in negative numbers in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, but that exit polls in those exact same states last fall put him in positive numbers, quite a difference between a theoretical poll and a survey of people who actually voted. Olson says if Trump wins just one of these states, just one, he wins re-election. It's still close. With his overall approval rating so low, Trump cannot afford to lose even a single small group of voters. But Olson says that with Trump supporters so devoted, only the likes of a war or recession could cut into his support. Trump doesn't need to win to win. Thanks to the Electoral College, all he has to do is get close. The polls show he is close already. But the Post's Greg Sargent points out that Trump is in fact losing part of the base that elected him in 2016, Suburban and millennial women. Out of concern for their children, these women are unhappy with Trump's politics on pollution and climate change. And that, says Sargent, is why Trump made false claims this week about his environmental accomplishments to try to hang on to the women who are leaving him behind. Divided we stand. Precisely half of us disapprove of the job that Donald Trump is doing as president. Statistically tied with that, about half of us approve of the job he's doing, 47%, according to the latest Washington Post-ABC News survey. We stand so divided, there were two Independence Day celebrations in the nation's capital this year, one for Trump supporters and one for everybody else. We are divided even within our individual selves. That Post-ABC poll reveals that more than six in ten of us find the man unpresidential, And yet that same survey puts Trump at the highest approval rating of his presidency, up five points in the last 60 days. Among those who find him unpresidential, one in five in that same group approve of his presidency nevertheless. The appearance of a strong economy has something to do with that. But being unpresidential is still perhaps Trump's greatest appeal among his supporters. That may explain why his popularity has risen, even as the cruelty of his immigration policies is exposed. Half the country disapproves of this president, but since about that many approve, the numbers show that a president this divisive could be reelected. As I indicated earlier, the poll shows there's only one Democrat who could decisively beat him at this early stage of the 2020 campaign, Joe Biden. 
The poll also shows that Trump supporters are every bit as determined to keep him in office as not quite a majority are ready to remove him. We are enthusiastically divided, and the division is most visible not just between Democrats and Republicans, but between men and women. Men are split 50-50 between Biden and Trump. Women, on the other hand, favor all five of the top Democratic challengers over Trump. That gender gap is one of the biggest challenges to the Trump-Publican Party in 2020, just as it was last fall in the 2018 midterms. It also faces gaps in age and race. Trump's re-election is not a sure thing, but statistically, he can win again in 2020. Democrats are suddenly and correctly more focused than ever on winning state elections in 2020. Elections for governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and seats in the state legislatures. It's their only hope now in redrawing congressional district maps to make them more fair now that Republicans have generally gerrymandered their way from coast to coast. The Democratic Party's road to the White House in 2020 and possible control of the Senate depends on regaining as much of an even playing field as possible now that so many districts have been redrawn to favor Republican candidates. That's why so often in recent years we've seen Democrats lose elections for national offices even though they got more votes than their Republican opponents. Even in the blue wave of 2018, Republicans survived in Michigan and Wisconsin. As an edition of this program was being released just two weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that courts must play no role in the drawing or changing of voting districts, leaving it to the legislative branch. That was a death blow to legal efforts to overturn the changes made by Republican state legislatures to isolate the votes of liberals, minorities, and immigrants, in other words, people most likely to vote Democrat. It is now more likely than ever that Democrats could win monopolistic control of every branch at every level of government thanks to this Supreme Court ruling. In fact, thanks to that ruling, expect to see more and more extreme gerrymandering, and that which already exists will be harder to undo. This ruling and its implications have Democrats doubling down on state races and campaigning harder in the suburbs they can win back from Trump, possibly reversing the gerrymandered advantage. In the meantime, Democrats may be doomed to only winning in midterm election years. They'll get some help from the voters who appear to be running out of patience for gerrymandering. Last fall, voters in a handful of states either limited or took away completely the ability of state lawmakers to redraw electoral maps. In some of those states, that's now done by independent commissions. Quoting an official of the watchdog group Common Cause, in a democracy, voters should choose their politicians, not the other way around. Districting for Congress. These are the words President Trump used this week to explain the importance of including a citizenship question in the 2020 U.S. Census. The president's lawyers may regret him saying that, for it is the very reason stated in documents that were apparently used to justify the decision to include that question. It may be the only honest explanation of the at least 10 explanations the administration has given just in the past four months for adding that question. Unfortunately for Trump, he may have just spilled the beans, accidentally supporting the argument used by his opposition to keep the citizenship question off the census form. In fact, Trump's own lawyers have been telling a judge that redistricting is not the reason for the question, and then Trump turns around and tells the world it is the reason. Over the holiday break, the government started printing that 2020 census without a citizenship question. It began printing 117 million questionnaires in English at eight pages apiece 
along with 21 million bilingual questionnaires at 16 pages apiece. They will be accompanied by 385 million one-page letters, 273 million inserts, and more than a half billion envelopes in multiple sizes. Those are all being printed now, too. More than one and a half billion documents in all to be mailed out by mid-March of next year, which requires a pace of 117 items per second from the time that the printing began around the 1st of July. The printing started amid a whirl of confusion in the Trump administration about whether it would or wouldn't pursue the question and whether it would or wouldn't abide by the Supreme Court ruling that also came over the break, declaring that the census question is off limits for now, ruling that the government had contrived its reasons for wanting that question. Trump has since decided to go ahead with the citizenship question, defying the Supreme Court with an executive order, apparently, which would require the printing of more than 130 million supplement pages in addition to the billion already being printed. The White House now says that executive order will be issued today. Expect legal challenges. Trump administration lawyers were caught off guard by Trump's decision to defy the Supreme Court, and many of them were not on board. Many of them don't think such a case is winnable. Some worried it was constitutional crisis territory. So William Barr pulled these career professionals off the case and turned to lawyers from other parts of the government, less qualified lawyers who have no problem defending Trump's defiance and his citizenship question in order to supercharge Republican gerrymandering. Trump's faithful attorney general says he believes the president can find a legal way to include the question, perhaps a legal way around the Supreme Court that, like Congress, is supposed to serve as a check and balance on the presidency. A federal judge, however put a damper on Barr's plan by ruling that the Trump administration had not given any good reason for swapping out its lawyers, just as it had given a contrived reason for adding that question to the census. The White House will not show the American people the documents it used to justify and promote the citizenship question claiming executive privilege. Speaker Pelosi says she will schedule a House vote finding Barr in contempt for not producing those documents. Pelosi says she'll schedule that vote soon. In the meantime, William Barr and Donald Trump continue to look at ways to add are you a United States citizen to the census that is already being printed. Think it's too early to talk about November 2020? The New York Times reports that the dirty tricks and misinformation from the Trump campaign are already underway. The Times reported that Patrick Malden, who makes videos and other content for Trump's internet campaign, has for three months been running a fake Joe Biden website that skewers Joe Biden. The website, aimed apparently at Bernie Sanders supporters, has a disclaimer saying it's a parody site run by an American for Americans, but it's been anonymously run by Molden, who serves as a consultant to the Trump re-election campaign. But to be on the safe side for Trump, Molden's also put up websites for Millionaire Bernie, Elizabeth Warren for Chief, Kamala Harris for arresting the people. Nearly one in four Internet users searching for the real Joe Biden website landed on this fake one instead. This fake website even sells Biden T-shirts. No Russian help needed. Nope, this election cycle will be rife with homegrown American-made election interference, complete with trolls and bots and intentionally divisive misinformation. Today, Republican lawmakers, political strategists, and conservative social media stars today 
gathering at the White House to talk, quote, about opportunities and challenges of the Internet in the 2020 campaign. Among those invited to attend, people with a history of posting inflammatory tweets and videos and memes, the very kind of post Facebook, Twitter, and Google are trying to stop. Trolls at the White House today. Among the challenges these Republicans face on the Internet for 2020, a new policy at Twitter that has the company labeling tweets from national political figures who break its content rules, this will affect no one so much as it will affect Donald Trump, who's repeatedly violated Twitter's terms, usually for bullying, without repercussion. Twitter had been loath to remove Trump's account since he is entitled the president. Another challenge, Reddit, which had become a hub for conspiracy theories and threats of violence. Reddit says it will now quarantine the biggest forum for Trump supporters, isolating it from the rest of the platform. And then came this week's federal appeals court ruling that Trump is not allowed to block from his Twitter account people who criticize or even mock him. The judge ruled that Trump is violating the Constitution by not allowing some Americans to access the official words of their president and more so by not allowing them to speak or exercise their rights to petition for change. The ruling mostly just applies to Trump because, as we have seen repeatedly, what he says on Twitter often becomes the policy of the country. Republicans and trolls are huddling at the White House today to plot their course for the 2020 campaign. Is it too early to talk about November 2020? Democrats have learned from the Russians, too. They tried a disinformation program targeting conservatives in Alabama in 2017 and helped a Democrat narrowly win a Senate race there. The biggest disinformation threat is coming from inside the House and now from both parties. What could possibly go wrong? So how's that non-impeachment going? The House Judiciary Committee is voting today to authorize subpoenas for a dozen of Robert Mueller's witnesses. That list includes the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, his former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, his former chief of staff, John Kelly, past and present administration officials, including Jody Hunt, Rob Porter, and Rick Dearborn, and Keith Davidson, the former lawyer for Stormy Daniels, who negotiated hush money with Trump former lawyer Michael Cohen. Mr. Davidson asked for his subpoena. Most of the others, however, are expected to ignore their subpoenas, claiming executive privilege, just as former White House counsel Don McGahn has done. The Judiciary Committee promised to take McGahn to court to enforce this subpoena. That was in May. This is July. McGahn has not been taken to court. Rinse, lather, repeat. That round of subpoenas for big-name witnesses went out on Tuesday. The day before, House Democrats issued dozens more subpoenas to get at Trump's business records. Senator Richard Blumenthal says this group of more than 200 congressional Democrats wants to see if there's evidence that Trump has violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which would normally keep a president from profiting from his position. The lawmakers want records from Trump Tower, from his D.C. hotel, and from his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. The full House has already voted to ban the White House from doing business with Trump's properties, but that bill, of course, is expected to die in the Senate. Trump has always said his business was a red line for investigators. 
But Trump's trips to Mar-a-Lago and his other resorts have cost taxpayers millions of dollars with hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions, going into Trump's pockets. Also disturbingly, foreign dollars going into Trump's pockets, a thing the founding fathers feared more than almost anything. And every trip to a Trump resort is an advertisement for Trump resorts. Yesterday, a federal appeals court threw out a lawsuit filed by Maryland and District of Columbia accusing Trump of violating the emoluments clause. The judges unanimously ruled that the plaintiffs, D.C. and Maryland, have no legal standing in this case, unable to prove how they were harmed by this alleged violation of the emoluments clause. The judge also, of course, struck down the accompanying subpoenas that would have revealed documents from Trump's businesses. However, a lawsuit by Congress to get those records has been given a green light to proceed by a federal judge in Washington in spite of Trump's lawyers' objections. Expect this case to head for the U.S. Supreme Court. House Democrats have already gone to court to try to get Trump's tax returns. The very careful chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, has filed a lawsuit against the IRS and the Treasury Department after they refused to provide those tax returns to Congress. Tax returns are regularly shared with Congress as it writes our tax laws. It's only Trump's returns that are being withheld, despite the law requiring Treasury to give Congress what it seeks. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow says he'll see them in court for what he calls presidential harassment. Trump himself has vowed to take all the way to the Supreme Court his fight to hide his federal tax returns from the voters, despite a precedent that has stood since Watergate. There is, however, nearly as much valuable information in Trump's state tax returns. Trump's business and his banking are all centered in New York. And at the hands of New York state lawmakers and its governor, the Congress in Washington now has that state's permission to see Trump's New York state tax returns. The law went into effect on Monday. Congress has still not asked for those returns. This coming Wednesday, just hours before my next report, Robert Mueller will testify for two congressional committees. The 24-7 cable news channels will cover it wall-to-wall. The big commercial networks are expected to preempt some regular daytime programming to air it, and it will stream on the Internet. Robert Mueller is the one man from whom most Americans have wanted to hear, so people will be watching. Here are the things we should watch for. Even if Mueller says, as he's indicated, nothing beyond what's in his report, it gets the report to all the people watching who haven't read it which is the vast majority of us, even those in Congress. But if Mueller says nothing beyond what's in the report, nothing to clarify the parts that have confused some of us, the Mueller hearing could be written off as a dud. And now that the Justice Department has instructed them not to show, will members of the Mueller investigative team show up to testify as previously agreed? Will those investigators defy DOJ's instructions? And if they talk, might they say more than what's just in the report? Watch for that. Every good melodrama needs a villain to swoop in to wreck the party. Enter stage right William Barr's Justice Department, which also made it a point to remind Bob Mueller he doesn't have to testify. DOJ, unlike the others, did not order Mueller to stay away, likely because it knew he would not listen. Perhaps Mueller's closest deputies won't listen either. 
Bill Barr's DOJ told Mueller it would have his back if he decided not to do the thing he said he didn't want to do in the first place. Barr's Justice Department even invited Mueller to join all the others who decided to just ignore their congressional subpoenas. Watch also the committee's Democratic leaders try to rein in belligerent Republicans who've already said they're out to break Mueller's credibility. More than that, the Republicans on that committee put together a battle plan for this hearing to discredit the Mueller probe once and for all. Perhaps they have forgotten their claim that the report exonerated the president. Will they succeed or look foolish and partisan? Either way, they will generate more anti-Mueller propaganda. Meanwhile, watch the Democrats try to avoid partisan politics in favor of a more sober prosecutorial handling of the proceedings. They will try. Will they succeed? The show starts at just after 9 a.m. Wednesday. Save me a seat. On British soil, about a month ago, three investigative attorneys from the U.S. Justice Department's Inspector General's Office, FBI agents really, met with the author of the infamous Steele dossier, respected former British spy Christopher Steele. While Trump was visiting the Prime Minister and the Queen in London, Steele was sitting down a lot, getting grilled by an Inspector General's investigators as part of an ongoing Trump administration effort to discredit the Russia investigation once and for all. These Inspector General's lawyers questioned Steele for 16 hours. It was contentious at first, but turned increasingly cooperative. In the end, the Inspector General's investigators say that despite Trump's claim that the Steele dossier is bogus, they found Mr. Steele to be quite credible. See if you recognize these words. I recognize the actions I acknowledged in court today were wrong, and through my faith in God, I'm working to set things right. My guilty plea and agreement to cooperate with the special counsel's office reflect a decision I made in the best interest of my family and of our country. I accept full responsibility for my actions. Who said that? Do you remember? That was Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, announcing on December 1st of 2017 that he had turned over a new leaf. A wind must have come along since, because Flynn's leaf has turned over again. We saw this coming when he recently fired his legal team as the date of his sentencing drew closer. And with a new lawyer comes new advice. And this lawyer is a strong Trump supporter and a harsh critic of the Mueller investigation. By all accounts, Flynn has flipped again, now no longer cooperating with the government. Government prosecutors, therefore, have announced they will not call Flynn to the stand in the trial of Flynn's former business partner. They say they will not call him to testify because they say they no longer believe his version of the events. And Flynn's latest flip has also thrown into doubt any mercy at his upcoming sentencing by the same judge who had little patience with Flynn the first time he appeared in that courtroom. Why would Mike Flynn commit this kind of sentencing Harry Carey just before that hearing? Is he angling for a presidential pardon? Stay tuned. It is about as difficult to picture Trump attacking Fox News as it is to envision Putin throwing shade on any of his propaganda outlets. But there it was on Sunday, the president's harshest assault yet on the channel that has sold his narrative in many cases created his narrative. And it is that propaganda network that has provided the Trump administration with some of its best people. 
baby was in a corner. The cruelty of his immigration policy had been more widely exposed by the New York Times and others, and a British ambassador had called his administration clumsy and dysfunctional. These things were being reported throughout the weekend from every news outlet, including the weekend anchors at Fox. Trump has never been a fan of Chris Wallace, the host of Fox News Sunday, and he's slammed the weekend anchors before, once in May and again last month when he tweeted, something weird going on at Fox. He hasn't been pleased that Fox has presented town hall meetings featuring the Democrats running against him. But Sunday's Twitter tantrum was unique because Trump had for the first time lumped Fox News Channel in with his usual targets. Watching Fox News weekend anchors, he raged, is worse than watching low-ratings fake news CNN or the crew of the degenerate NBC, MSNBC Trump haters. Fox News, who failed in getting the boring Democratic debates, wrote Trump, is now loading up with Democrats and even using fake unsourced New York Times as a source of information. Fox News is changing fast, tweeted Trump, adding, but they forgot the people who got them there. This particular Twitter tirade followed a live report from France from a sports pub where patrons had been celebrating the U.S. women's soccer victory and chanting F. Trump and get the racist out of the White House. Video of that incident went viral after being broadcast initially and unintentionally by the same Fox News channel that Trump has praised so often. But it was also that same weekend that Fox and all the others were reporting that multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein had been arrested for molesting and trafficking underage girls and that Epstein had social and professional ties to both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Their names could be found in Epstein's address book, along with the names of Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz, Ken Starr, Leslie Wexner, who owns Victoria's Secret. Clinton says he knows nothing about Epstein's horrible crimes. Over 10 years ago, Clinton flew four times on Epstein's private jet for international trips on behalf of the Clinton Foundation. The jet is nicknamed the Lolita Express. Epstein's address book revealed in a child molestation case from 10 years ago, contains 14 private phone numbers for Donald Trump and those immediately surrounding him. Epstein was a guest at Trump's Mar-a-Lago club, but ultimately was asked to stay away after another guest had complained that Epstein had approached an underage girl there. They have dined at each other's homes. On one occasion, Trump flew on Epstein's plane, but there is so much more. Epstein was quoted in court papers saying he wanted to set up his modeling agency, quote, the same way Trump set up his modeling agency. Epstein's agency say the prosecutors employed underage girls. The New York Times reports that Trump had a party at Mar-a-Lago in 1992, very exclusive party, just Trump and Jeffrey Epstein and 28 women. The women were flown in for a calendar girl contest, Trump's idea. The Times is not making this up. It got this from former Trump associate George Horanay, who says he had warned Trump about Epstein. Horanay says it was 1992 when he told Trump, look, Donald, I know Jeff really well. I can't have him going after young girls. I'm putting my name on this. I wouldn't put my name on it and have a scandal. Not long after, Horanay and Trump parted ways after Trump allegedly made sexual advances on Horanay's girlfriend. Back in 2016, a woman claimed that she was 13 years old when Donald Trump raped her repeatedly at Epstein's Manhattan townhouse. Trump denied the accusation 
and the woman dropped her lawsuit against him after what her lawyer described as death threats. But wait, there's more. And this is much more present day. Billed as coming soon at Trump's resort in Doral, Florida, a golf tournament sponsored by a Miami-area strip club that would provide its dancers as caddies. Or as the ad that bears the president's name put it, the caddy girl of your choice. They will wear, quoting an organizer, a sexy white polo and a pink miniskirt as they bend over to pick up the ball. That's at Trump's club. Later, at the strip club, things would be very different. VIPs would be treated to what's described as a very tasteful burlesque show that might involve full nudity. Ask for the $1,000 VIP upgrade and you get three days at the President's Hotel plus a half-hour VIP room at the strip club plus bottle service. Trump's company would, of course, profit from this event just as it once did from the PGA Tour. Having lost that tournament, business at Doral has suffered, so now the Trump organization is down to strip clubs. Quickly after this story went public yesterday, the president's company announced it was pulling out of the event. It does not at the moment appear likely, but if Epstein were to flip for prosecutors to get his sentence reduced, Donald Trump, more than all the others, has reason to worry. I've known Jeff for 15 years, said Trump in 2002. Terrific guy. A lot of fun to be with. It said he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them, added Trump, are on the younger side. The girls were as young as 14, say federal prosecutors. The dozens of girls that Epstein allegedly paid hundreds of dollars each to remove their clothing and be touched, photographed, and trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein both at his mansion in Manhattan and his luxury home in Palm Beach, Florida, known to some locals as Pedophile Island. They say that Epstein used others, including his employees and the girls themselves, to recruit more girls. He allegedly paid a bounty for new girls. Epstein was arrested over the weekend and now awaits trial in a Manhattan jail cell that's described as worse than Guantanamo. He now once again faces life in prison. The last time he faced that prospect, Epstein was rescued by the man who was then the U.S. attorney in South Florida, Alex Acosta, who is now part of Trump's cabinet as Secretary of Labor. Acosta is now under investigation by the Justice Department for that uh, illegal plea deal. Illegal because the victims in that case had not been informed of the deal as the law requires. Under that deal... Epstein avoided federal charges altogether, facing only one state conviction that let him out of jail for 12 hours a day, six days a week, on work release, so that he could go to an office he created for his work release. But New York's federal prosecutors say they are not bound to that Florida deal. These are charges prosecutors don't typically bring unless they're certain of a conviction. Their indictment, unsealed on Monday, asked the court for permission to seize Epstein's mansion on New York's Upper East Side. And the feds say Epstein knew the girls were underage because they have evidence the girls told him their ages and that Epstein had contact with these girls almost daily. Trump has responded to all of this, telling reporters there was no avoiding Epstein in the social circles of Palm Beach, Florida, saying of Epstein, I was not a fan, that I can tell you. In 2002, at about the period of time for which Epstein is being prosecuted, Donald Trump called the alleged child molester a terrific guy. Today, he's not a fan. 
stop him if you've heard this before. Trump has also used the barely know the guy defense with Michael Cohen, Ann Coulter, James Comey, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and of course, coffee boy, George Papadopoulos. So given all this, it's not surprising that Trump's favorite attorney general, William Barr, has decided not to recuse himself from the Epstein case, giving him and Trump control over the case's destiny. Barr had recused himself on Monday from reviewing the Epstein case of 10 years ago that was handled secretly and illegally. On Tuesday, we learned that it was just that old case that Barr has decided not to recuse himself from this new case that could involve his boss. And then there's the issue of the cruelty in Trump's immigration policy. While millions of us were preparing to celebrate our independence, we were presented with photographs of lots of humans crammed tightly into caged cells in the Border Patrol's detention centers. The pictures didn't come from some liberal news outlet. They came from the office of the Inspector General at the Homeland Security Department. The pics were just part of a report that told us the overcrowding and the squalor are worse than we've been told by the Trump administration. Standing room only in many cells, forcing thousands of prisoners to take turns sleeping for lack of room or to sleep sitting up for more than a month. No showers, not even for the kids. No hot meals. Mistreatment. Wet wipes for hygiene at best. Bologna for sandwiches. Enough bologna sandwiches to cause mass constipation. This in the government's own report. As agents for the inspector general passed by some cells, immigrants held up notes begging for help and telling how long they had been held prisoner. That report followed another by Hispanic lawmakers from Washington who found deplorable conditions, including women being forced to drink water from a toilet bowl. Trump tweeted it was cleaner water than what they'd drunk back home and called the reports of inhumane conditions fake news. Trump was lashing out at the press after that New York Times report, which followed those of the Hispanic Caucus and Homeland Security. Upon touring the facility at Clint, Texas, the Times revealed outbreaks of not just chicken pox, but shingles and scabies, crabs. Some of the children are as young as five months. The Times found that the stench of the children's clothing had worked its way into the clothing worn by the guards who kept them captive. That smell was on the guards, too. One border agent revealed his work is heartbreaking and, quote, it gets to the point where you start to become a robot. But time and again, these border agents are brought to tears in the course of their work, and a number of them have complained to their superiors. Others, especially in a system like this one, relish the cruelty. Who told you to come here with your baby anyway? An agent asked of a mother who had fallen ill. And then came this story from NBC News. NBC got hold of some significant incident reports, as they're called, that exposed abuse at migrant children prisons in Arizona. Those reports include one of sexual assault. A 15-year-old girl reported that she had been molested by a CBP officer when she was 15. She's now 16, which means she, like so many others, had spent her birthday in jail. She says the big officer with a beard put his hands inside her bra, pulled down her underwear, and groped her, during what was supposed to have been a routine pat-down. Other officers were present, but the girl says that while the searching officer was groping, he was saying something to the other officers in English and laughing. The incident report form is checked no on the question, should this incident be investigated? 
NBC News also found tales of retaliation in those significant incident reports. 16-year-old Guatemalan boy explained that the other boys and men in his cell complained to CBP agents about the water, which, as reported here before, tastes like chlorine. As punishment for complaining, Border Patrol agents removed all of the mats from their cell, forcing all of the men and boys to sleep directly on bare concrete. A cell full of young girls lost the one lice comb they had been told to share, and they were punished by also being forced to sleep on a bare tile floor, their blankets also taken away. Some of our migrant prisoners had no blankets in the first place, and some go to bed hungry, falling asleep at 9 p.m. before dinner, such as it is, has been served. The food is described as cold and gross. Guards have kicked the children to awaken them. In some cases, guards have yelled at the kids and called them offensive names. One kid described the guards as mean and scary and told of a child being handcuffed for having a small stockpile of food, one burrito, a cup of pudding, and some juice. A child handcuffed. NBC got its hands on 30 of these significant incident reports just from one detention center in Yuma, Arizona. But it is the alleged sexual molestation of a 15-year-old girl by a U.S. Border Patrol agent that has now set off a federal investigation. These reports of immigrant cruelty have had a couple of repercussions for their perpetrators. First, lawyers have asked a federal judge to order immediate health department inspections of these migrant prisons. The lawyers had toured detention facilities along the border and found rampant illness, a lack of proper nutrition, and a lack of basic hygiene. They're citing the Flores Amendment of 1997 that requires immigrant children be held in safe and sanitary conditions. At least six migrant children have died in detention since September. Bank of America, meanwhile, has cut its business ties with the private prison companies that run these detention centers and prison camps. BOA was one of the last of the Wall Street banks to cut ties with the private prison industry, which is making big money off Trump's tough policies. J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and U.S. Bank have also backed out of deals with private prisons to stay on the good sides of the Democrats who are now running for president. And none other than the human rights chief of the United Nations has expressed she is deeply shocked by the cruel conditions for migrants that have been revealed by lawmakers, journalists, and even part of the U.S. government itself. United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet says she is appalled by the conditions that are forced upon migrants to the U.S., and she scolded our government for failing to fix it. Bachelet says she was deeply shocked by the treatment of migrant children. Several human rights groups have called the detention of migrant children at the U.S. border a violation of international law for being, quote, cruel, inhuman, or degrading. Check, check, and check. And although the influx of migrants dropped by 28% last month thanks to intervention by Mexico, the cruelty marches on. The Trump administration is taking away the interpreters who have normally appeared at an immigrant's first court hearing. No interpreters anymore, just a video explaining the charges and their rights in Spanish. It's a cost-cutting measure, we're told, and one that will speed up the process as the cases roll through the courtroom in assembly line fashion. An interpreter will only be called in if the talking machine and the immigrant don't connect. That interpreter could be anyone in the building or one of those on-demand telephone interpreter services. 
the immigrants will hear their charges from a machine, unable to respond, unaccompanied by a lawyer, next case. Quoting one anonymous immigration judge, how are they supposed to ask questions of the judge? It is, he said, a disaster in the making. And then there's this Trump administration policy, the new one, that takes protection from deportation away from the families of those currently actively serving the American Armed Forces. Active duty troops' families can now be deported in Trump's America. Says a lawyer who represents our immigrant soldiers, it's going to create chaos in the military, adding, if you got rid of everybody in the military who had a connection to a foreigner, you wouldn't have anyone in the military. And undocumented immigrants around the country continue to live in fear and continue to prepare for the raids that Trump vowed would begin very soon. To stop the rapists and drug dealers that Trump has declared to invade our country from Mexico, he plans to arrest thousands of families. For weeks, immigrant parents have kissed their children goodbye each morning, unsure whether they'd be returning that evening. There's a garden nursery in California where the employees are on edge. There are entire neighborhoods on edge. The immigration roundup will not apprehend the millions Trump originally promised his base, of course. But as an immigration rights lawyer puts it, even if the numbers are small, the purpose of the raids on the show of force is to scare a larger population. The surprise raid had been planned for three weeks ago, but Trump blew its cover by announcing its start. The undocumented community has ever since been living in fear, even through today. And then this morning, we learned from Homeland Security that the raids will begin on Sunday in 10 major U.S. cities. No word whether it'll be during church services or after. Despite all the other bad mojo, Epstein, Fox, the F. Trump, and that ambassador, Trump's Sunday attack on the New York Times was mostly over its new reports on the deplorable conditions at that migrant facility in Clinton, Texas. The week before, he'd accused the newspaper of a virtual act of treason because he didn't like its accurate report that the U.S. had stepped up its hacking of the Russian power grid. The man who had bragged about grabbing women's private parts and has been accused of sexually aggressive behavior by well over a dozen women this week denied the rape accusation from a famous magazine journalist saying it never happened. But none of this seems to mean much anymore now that most of us are numb to the president's regular cries of fake news. It should matter now more than ever. It was at last week's G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, at which Trump bonded with Vladimir Putin over their scorn for journalism and our constitutionally mandated free press. Get rid of them, declared Trump to the dictator he has admired, praised, defended, and exonerated. Fake news is a great term, isn't it? Trump asked of Putin. You don't have this problem in Russia, he told Putin, adding, but we do. Putin, responding in English, replied, we also have, it's the same. The two of them chuckled about it after the American president had declared, get rid of them. It was insult beyond injury spoken on the first anniversary of the murders of five employees at the Capital Gazette newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland. It was the first time Trump and Putin had gotten together since the release of the Mueller report, and perhaps the U.S. president was trying to defuse the tension. 
Maybe that's why he also did not take seriously a reporter's question about whether he had warned Putin not to interfere in the 2020 election. Don't meddle in the election, please, said Trump as he wagged his finger at the Russian president. Big smiles all around. Cybersecurity experts tell the Washington Post it is not apparent that the Trump administration has done anything to prevent future interference. The president of the United States seems anything but serious when it comes to protecting our elections. He seems very serious about the get rid of them free press. Deadly serious. Trump was chummy with another dictator last week at the G20, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, who got invited to the U.S. on that trip and to another nuclear summit with the U.S. president. Kim also got the world stage he seeks by personally welcoming Trump across the demilitarized zone and into a land never visited before by an American president. And Trump had time to praise and have breakfast with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, despite the conclusion of the CIA and the UN that the prince ordered the bloody murder of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Praising the prince for modernizing his country and fighting terrorism, Trump said to Mohammed bin Salman, I just want to thank you on behalf of a lot of people. You've done a really spectacular job. Also, while at the G20, Trump called off his trade war with China after a meeting with Chinese leader for life Xi Jinping and by proposing more trade talks. But it was there that he ignored the demands of France and Japan when it came to the Paris Climate Accord. And it was there that he continued to berate our allies as he cast a positive light on the world's dictators. The oddest thing about the president's G20 trip was the involvement of daughter Ivanka. While Don Jr. stayed home to falsely tweet about Kamala Harris's racial background, Ivanka was butting into private conversations between world leaders at the G20 with dad. Britain's Theresa May, French President Macron, and Canada's Justin Trudeau were chatting with the chair of the International Monetary Fund when Ivanka popped into the circle. That video went viral, too, and was compared to an 11-year-old girl trying to take part in a grown-up conversation. The clutch of world leaders appear in that video to mostly ignore the president's daughter, struggling to contain their displeasure at seeing her standing where a real American diplomat would usually stand. While other world leaders were escorted by their spouses to the G20, Melania stayed home, Trump escorted instead by his daughter. Trump introduced her at each event and let her deliver a readout of one of the meetings to the press. The grooming and image building of Ivanka Trump is underway. Ivanka and Jared got a selfie with the Prime Minister of Japan. When President Trump became the first U.S. president to set foot in North Korea, his daughter Ivanka went with him. It was son-in-law Jared Kushner who'd just released a Middle East peace plan. Ivanka and her husband are exempt from the Federal Anti-Nepotism Act because of a loophole. That law bans a president's relatives from working in federal agencies. But the White House is not considered a federal agency, so its employees are technically exempt. What Jared and Ivanka do, what their actual job titles are, what their qualifications are, remains unclear. Ivanka's role can't be pinned down since she doesn't even draw a salary. She does whatever she does at no pay, which also means she cannot be held accountable for whatever it is she does.
but with no training. She was trying to play the role of international diplomat, not because she worked or earned her way into such a position, but because she is her father's daughter. And that is hurting U.S. credibility around the globe. In a speech to our troops in South Korea last week, as the G20 trip was coming to an end, Trump invited on stage Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But before Pompeo could make it to the lectern, Trump had already invited Ivanka to join them, telling the troops she's going to steal the show. Our national security advisor, John Bolton, didn't make the G20 trip and was therefore not seen at the summit. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was there, but got upstaged by Trump's daughter. When the first Bush was president, George Herbert Walker Bush, neither of his two sons, who would later run for president, were ever part of their father's meetings with world leaders. So just what Ivanka is grooming herself for is not in any way clear. In the meantime, Trump has rid himself of the adults in the room and those who've tried to rein him in. He has surrounded himself instead with acting cabinet secretaries and acting administrators in the most crucial roles in government. And he gets the support he needs from his kids because this administration is a family business. It was this week that we learned of memos from Britain's ambassador to the U.S. describing Trump and his administration as inept and dysfunctional, predicting that this presidency would, quote, crash and burn and end in disgrace. The ambassador described Trump as insecure and incompetent. He wrote that the reports of vicious infighting and chaos in the White House were mostly true, despite Trump's claim of fake news. That ambassador is Kim DeRoe, one of Britain's most respected and experienced diplomats. These memos, these comments, were supposed to have been private, diplomatic communiques between him and the British government that employed him, but someone had leaked them. Other UK officials distanced themselves from what DeRoe had written but stood firmly by the ambassador, despite Trump declaring that he would refuse to deal with DeRoe going forward. And if Theresa May were not on her way out, DeRoe might have stuck around. But as it is, he has resigned, knowing that Theresa May is about to be replaced in part by Boris Johnson, Britain's version of Donald Trump. DeRoe had gotten backing from every British leader except Boris Johnson. Unable to work with the Trumpian leader on either side of the Atlantic, Kim DeRoe, who dared to point out that the emperor has no clothes, has been banished. Our closest ally, Britain, had lost one of its finest ambassadors because somebody leaked those communiques. As July approached, the president was frustrated about running into obstacles and resistance as he tried to match the grandeur of the French Bastille Day celebration for this year's Independence Day. Tired of hearing about the damage it could do to the Capitol Mall and the multi-million dollar cost of transportation, Trump ordered the Pentagon to cough up more military hardware, more tanks and fighter jets. If the tanks couldn't be driven down the streets, then haul them in and park them near where the president will give his speech. Trump had already ordered a flyover by the Blue Angels and by the airplane known as Air Force One when a president is on board. He then added an F-35 stealth fighter and a Marine helicopter, Squadron One. Never before affected by the National Fireworks Show, Reagan National Airport traffic had to be shut down for two hours 
to accommodate the fireworks Trump had added at the other end of the Capitol Mall. Under orders from Trump, the Pentagon was not allowed to tell taxpayers how much they had spent on the additional Trump show. It would later report a little over a million. But we know it cost about $30,000 per hour to fly an F-35. Each of the Blue Angels jets cost ten grand an hour apiece. The plane known as Air Force One, $140,000 an hour. The planes were flown in from Florida, Missouri, and California at a cost of thousands of dollars per hour. Estimates put the cost of the flyovers alone at up to $2 million. We know that the military parade that Trump had hoped to pull off last year would cost about $92 million, $50 million of which would have come from the defense budget. We know that $2.5 million was snatched from the National Park Service, which would have spent that money maintaining our national parks, another $2.5 million taken from the Secret Service. But the dollars of taxpayers who are being kept in the dark about how much they're paying were used to produce an event that included ticketing and VIP seating. The mayor of D.C. has sent the president a letter warning that the security fund for the nation's capital has now been depleted. Thanks to the $1.7 million it was forced to spend to handle the demonstrations just outside Trump's 4th of July event, including the demonstrators tethered to the big Trump baby balloon. Mayor Muriel Bowser also reminded Trump that he still owes the city $7.3 million for his inauguration over two years ago. D.C.'s congressional representative, who isn't allowed to vote in Congress, has asked the lawmakers for another $6 million just to get the city by. Although not quite a Trump campaign rally, the would-be authoritarian took center stage, surrounded by the tools of the wars he says he does not want. Trump was excited about what he called the brand-new Sherman tanks, even though Sherman tanks have not been used by the U.S. military since 1957. Our July 4th celebration of the Declaration of Independence would be, at Trump's end of the mall, a celebration of America's military might and include a fractured history fable from the president. Trump spoke for 45 minutes about America's military history, or as he put it, the greatest story ever told. One historian compared Trump's speech to that of an angry grandpa reading a fifth grader's book report. Most of the inaccuracies were small, but they came at a regular pace. Canadians, for example, are steamed that Trump claimed U.S. credit for Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. Although Bell got a U.S. patent, he was a Scotsman who had immigrated to Canada. But the gaffe that got the most attention was when Trump spoke of the Americans who had fought the Brits in the Revolutionary War. Our army manned the air, declared Trump, continuing, it rammed the ramparts, it took over the airports. He was talking about 1776, more than 150 years before the nation's first airport would open. He blamed it on a broken or hard-to-read teleprompter. Jokes about Revolutionary War air travel went viral and stayed viral for days because if you don't laugh, you cry. I cannot fail to note the sentencing during my absence of the white supremacist who killed Heather Heyer when he plowed into a crowd of people protesting against 
his racist cause in Charlottesville, Virginia. 35 people were injured in that attack. The self-styled neo-Nazi was sentenced to life in prison, convicted of more than two dozen hate crimes. In Florida, meanwhile, the Republicans who control the legislature and the state house have now successfully sidetracked the will of Florida voters. Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill that changes the decision of the voters to let convicted felons vote once they've done their time. That's one and a half million people, one and a half million voters. Because that is likely to boost the number of Democratic voters in a state barely clinging to its southern roots, Republican lawmakers swooped in to require that these felons have not only served their time, but that they've also paid up all their fines and court costs. That, say critics, amounts to a poll tax. Making people pay to cast a vote is unconstitutional. Every American who's not behind bars gets to vote. What would have been the biggest expansion of voting rights in the past 50 years in this country now will not be. In Florida, ex-cons now have to pay what's due if they want to vote blue. Voters who want to see Democrats win more control of state governments around the country should keep their eyes on Virginia. There, Democrats are hoping to take control of both chambers of the state legislature for the first time in more than 20 years, and they plan to ride to victory on the issue of gun control. This particular political battle began after the killing of 12 people in a mass shooting at a city building in Virginia Beach. In the days that followed, Democratic lawmakers filed some 30 bills to restrict gun use, to restrict their lethality, and to impose tougher punishments on those who violate gun laws. Virginia's Democratic Governor Ralph Northam called a special session after that bloody mass shooting in his state. Republicans, who still hold a narrow majority in the Virginia House, were able to shut down that special session by deferring the matter until after the election there this November 2019. Gutless bastards, a man cried from the balcony. Republicans called that special section an election year stunt when it was in fact a response to the taking of a dozen lives in minutes on Virginia soil. But for Virginia Democrats, it could be the issue that takes majority control away from the state's Republicans. Quoting the state Senate Minority Leader, the Republicans in this state are totally controlled, I mean 100% controlled, by the National Rifle Association. Said another Democrat, it'll be up to the voters in November now, and the rest of the country will be watching and taking notes. And we must also note the passing of Luis Alvarez, the New York City cop who died from cancer after extended work in the post-9-11 rubble at the World Trade Center. Alvarez entered hospice just days after testifying alongside a much louder John Stewart who demanded action to extend the health benefits for the men who worked alongside Luis Alvarez. Mitch McConnell says he's on it. Bob Seska's commentary. More ozone, less ice, and the cockroach that would not die in the final segment after this. I know why you're here. At such a crucial time in our history, you know the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support it. So I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for research, equipment, and supplies. Your support is what keeps this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. If you're able, 
You can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can. Or maybe just when you hear something you like. On your desktop browser, that gold donate button's on the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, that button is just above the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Thank you for supporting this free and independent reporting through that PayPal donate button. So who's been watching the numbers while all this other news is in play? Our acting economics professor today is Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. When Barack Obama was inaugurated in January 2009, a little more than 10 years ago, the economy was collapsing all around us. That month, 818,000 Americans lost their jobs due to the Great Recession that began in 2007 and exploded in the fall of 2008 in the midst of the general election. At that point, all bets were off. Republicans and Democrats alike were focused on stopping the hemorrhaging, irrespective of party ideology. Scrambling to stop the bleeding after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and AIG, George W. Bush's TARP initiative was the first major step in the direction of a massive bailout for banks and lending institutions, absorbing the most toxic assets from the big lenders. The price tag of mitigating the possible death of the economy created an instant budget deficit of around $1.2 trillion for fiscal year 2009, which actually began in October of 2008. Once the Obamas triumphantly entered the White House, the recession had grown worse for the American labor force, and the economy receded by a staggering 5.4% that month. Something drastic would have to be achieved immediately, so the new president chose to spend a significant amount of his political capital on an $850 billion stimulus package, as well as other measures that included a bailout of the auto industry and a second TARP authorization. The Obama administration's plan, especially the stimulus itself, was immediately demonized by Fox News and even MSNBC's Morning Joe as part of a new Red Scare. Glenn Beck was at the height of his popularity at the time, screeching about communist fascism or whatever the hell contradictory gibberish he could poop out of his doughy mouth, complete with chalkboards diagramming the end of the world as we knew it, with Barack Obama pulling the trigger on the doomsday machine. Gold sales and apocalypse bunkers became the hot-selling items to the weirdo paranoiac crowd, the racist proto-Trumpers who were still intoxicated by Sarah Palin's nincompoopery. The Tea Party emerged that year with its taxed-enough-already acronym screaming about higher taxes, when in fact the stimulus was, dollar for dollar, the largest middle-class tax cut in history. Regardless, the lawn chair activists who composed the Tea Party were convinced that Obama's allegedly out-of-control spending would lead to higher taxes and communism somehow. By the end of 2009, the economy had begun to improve again, timed almost perfectly to the successful passage of the stimulus in March. However, the budget deficit topped out at $1.4 trillion for that year, and Obama was blamed for all of it, despite the factual mathematical, statistical reality that $1.2 trillion of that deficit had been authorized by Bush before Obama even won the 2008 election. Listening to Fox News or the spazzy white guys on CNBC, you'd think Obama had spent a trillion dollars on Obama phones and veggies for Michelle's garden rather than rescuing the economy from collapsing into a second Great Depression. Suddenly that year, the national debt became a thing again, despite its absence from the political debate for the previous eight Bush Republican years, 
of off-the-books wars and unfunded programs like Medicare Part D. Total silence until Obama. The stimulus and various economy-saving measures, including the proposed health care legislation working its way through Congress, were to blame for the debt, even though the fire had started long ago, leading to the $12 trillion in debt by the end of the year. Now, bear in mind the difference between the budget deficit and the national debt. The debt is the accumulation of public debt and debt due to the government's budget deficits. The Republicans, however, preyed upon the ignorance of the public by claiming the deficit was the debt and vice versa, depending on how badly they needed to lie about the numbers. Suffice to say, the $12 trillion debt in 2009 was framed as the end of the world, launching innumerable town hall protests in advance of the 2010 midterms. Now, fast forward 10 years. On Wednesday this week, we learned the national debt has advanced beyond the $22 trillion mark and rising. With the mad king and two years of Republican congressional spending, including a $1.5 trillion tax cut for the super rich, a number exceeding the entire budget deficit of Obama's first year, driving it all. And what was the Trump administration's reaction to this debt milestone? Trump's economic advisor and former CNBC spazzy white guy Larry Kudlow said, I don't see this as a huge problem right now at all. Quite manageable. So it was the end of civilization when the debt was $12 trillion in 2009. Now that it's $22 trillion, it's totally manageable? Kudlow is clearly reacquainting himself with his former cocaine habit, I assume. Meanwhile, it's worth noting that under Barack Obama, the $1.4 trillion budget deficit in 2009 was cut to just $585 billion by the end of Obama's second term, a deficit reduction of nearly a trillion dollars. Again, Obama was the reincarnation of Lenin, Marx, and Stalin by way of Hitler somehow, Conversely, Donald Trump, who bankrupted five casinos and his Republican Congress through 2017 and 2018, spiked the budget deficit from $585 billion to $779 billion. And by the end of 2020, Trump could be hauled out of the White House after presiding over a projected budget deficit of $1.1 trillion, just $300 billion less than the budget deficit following the Great Recession. And Trump's had a relatively decent economy, thanks to Obama. Historically, only one Republican president since 1932 has reduced the deficit following his two terms, Eisenhower. Likewise, the previous two Democratic presidents have resided over significant deficit reduction, Obama and Bill Clinton, the latter delivering a budget surplus. Every other Republican president has engaged in the starve the beast strategy, running up huge deficits, forcing subsequent Democratic presidents to cut back or raise taxes, all to the tune of Republican gaslighting about the irresponsible tax and spend Democrats. In fact, that's exactly what happened to Obama. Bush's spending authorizations created deficits that allowed Fox News and other Republican operatives to lay the blame on Obama, forcing the Democrat to carve back the price tags on the stimulus and the Affordable Care Act. The reality is, for better or worse, that the Democratic Party, with its alleged handouts and welfare queens, has emerged as the party of fiscal discipline, while the Republican Party hasn't given us a president who can work with Congress to cut the deficit, and hence the debt, in the last 60 years.
Now, while I'm a Keynesian, I also believe democratic fiscal responsibility allows the latitude to spend on new initiatives like a public health insurance option or research into green energy. One thing we know for sure, the next Democratic president will face the same counterfactual gaslighting and the fallout from Trump's version of Starve the Beast. And you'd better believe Fox News and Larry Kudlow will suddenly give a shit about the national debt starting on November 3rd, 2020. That is, if all goes well for us. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show there this afternoon with Jody Hamilton and David Ferguson. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Climate news. Much less ice, much more ozone layer. First, the most concerning news, that there has been a massive reduction in ice at the Antarctic just in the past five years. The latest research calls it a precipitous drop, meaning big and fast. The report says we have lost as much sea ice in the past four years as the Arctic had lost in the 34 years leading up to that. The less ice to reflect sunlight, the more dark oceans to absorb it. And the planet grows warmer. And it's the warming of the planet, of course, that's melting the ice. More encouraging, a report on the Earth's ozone layer, which is very close to being all well again. Scientists say the hole we created in that ozone layer that protects us from some of the sun's rays should be completely healed by the 2030s. The hole is largely created by the use of refrigerants like Freon and other products that were for decades sold as damaging aerosols, including hairspray. It's called the German cockroach, but it's really found all over the world. And here's something disturbing. That worldwide pest is getting harder to kill. It's developed immunities to insecticides. Indiana researchers have found that German cockroaches have become resistant to several kinds of insecticides at once. That, says one researcher, will make controlling these pests almost impossible with chemicals alone. What's next, Doc? Flamethrowers? Researcher Michael Scharf says they have looked for ways around these resistances, but without much success. Drink to your health? A new study says nearly one in five Americans say they have been somehow harmed in the past two years by someone else's drinking. Those harms include threats, harassment, vandalism, financial problems, relationship issues, suspended and revoked driver's licenses, and physical aggression. It's being called the second-hand alcohol effect, and it's affecting 53 million Americans. A surprisingly long list of passings and passages this week. Actor Rip Torn, the hot-tempered actor who reached his apex with Defending Your Life, Men in Black, and landed the role of his lifetime in The Larry Sanders Show, left us at age 88. R.I.P. Rip. And the same fond farewell to comic actor Artie Johnson, who won an Emmy for his many funny characters on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Described as a true gentleman, Johnson hailed from Chicago, where he started in public relations. And he said, as he approached the end of his life at age 90, that he never got tired of repeating the words of his German character as only he could deliver them. That made Artie Johnson not just funny, but very interesting. 
We also note the passing of pitchman and former Chrysler executive Lee Iacocca, who made himself famous in Chrysler commercials and once considered a run for president. But it was Lee Iacocca who launched the Ford Mustang and would later save Chrysler from bankruptcy. He once ranked only behind President Reagan and the Pope among the world's most respected men. Lee Iacocca left us this week at age 94. And we must sadly note the passing of Mad Magazine, which has been rudely funny for 67 years. The August 2019 edition is the last to hit the newsstands, and it will cease publication entirely before the end of the year. It'll only be available in comic book shops and in the mailboxes of paid subscribers. But even as the year runs out, new material will be quickly replaced by rerun content. In the future, there will still be the occasional book or best of or retrospective. Is it because the world has become more outrageous than Mad Magazine that it could no longer compete? Or is it just the further fading of print publications? In Chicago this week, the black newspaper, The Defender, has also ceased publication. For decades, it was a reliable source of news for African Americans in the Windy City. Quoting a former editor, as a kid, you always knew about The Defender. It was at everybody's house. It was at the barbers. It was everywhere, South Side or West Side. It was used in those places to settle arguments. Quoting that former editor, you knew it didn't happen if it wasn't in The Defender. And Chicago also, over the break, lost a fascinating black journalist, Russ Ewing. Russ covered the crime beat for two of the major network-owned television stations in Chicago. But the thing that made him special, he was trusted by both the cops and the criminals. Russ Ewing was able, in his TV career in Chicago, to persuade more than 115 suspects to turn themselves into police. Russ Ewing lived to be 95. 69-year-old Stevie Wonder announced this past week he's taking a break from performing to undergo a kidney transplant. Spider-Man, far from home, netted the biggest box office take this week, opening with nearly $94 million. Toy Story 4 remained in a powerful second place with over $34 million. The Beatles-inspired movie Yesterday is in third, but with a weak $11 million take. For what it's worth, the Spidey movie set a record for ticket sales among all the movies that have ever opened on a Tuesday. As the week progressed, its take crept up toward $125 million, not bad for six days. For previews and tickets, please click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Hawaii this week became the 26th state to decriminalize marijuana if you count those that have legalized it for adults entirely. The state's Democratic legislature pushed the bill to passage, but it was not signed by Hawaii's Democratic governor, who simply allowed it to become law without his signature. The Hawaii law, it should be noted, bans possession of more than three grams of weed, which is the smallest amount allowed by any of those more than two dozen states. Still, more than half the country is now green, as marijuana remains illegal at the federal level. Her name is Marijuana Pepsi Van Dyke, but you can call her Dr. Van Dyke. Marijuana Pepsi is not some name that she chose. It is on her birth certificate. It is what her mother named her over her father's objections. Her sister's names are Kimberly and Robin, 
but their mother enjoyed an ice-cold Pepsi after smoking some weed, so those two names follow in that order for Dr. Van Dyke. Life has not been easy with a name like Marijuana Pepsi, but she was a stunning student in school, winning awards and scholarships despite a rocky home life. Today, as Dr. Van Dyke, she says she has never once tried marijuana and that she's not a big fan of soda. Speaking of munchies, Joey Chestnut again won the Nathan's 4th of July hot dog eating contest, his 12th victory, this time with 71 wieners, just a few shy of the all-time record he set last year. Joey says it's getting harder as he gets older. He's 32. But while the women's national soccer team was preparing to score another world championship, 40-year-old Molly Schuyler was the winner of a hamburger-eating contest in Tenleytown, Washington. She ate 32 hamburgers in 10 minutes in a field that included men. Molly also fell short of the number she downed last year. But my girlfriend is not hungry is now an actual menu item at a diner in Arkansas. Mama D's in Little Rock features for $4.25, My Girlfriend is Not Hungry, which includes some extra fries, since she may eat yours instead of ordering her own. If you're having wings, you get extra wings for your girlfriend to steal. Also, cheese sticks. There have, not surprisingly, been accusations of sexism, but Mama D's claims it's really just a solution for anyone who dines with anyone who eats food off their plates. The restaurant does not, however, offer women a you-gonna-eat-that menu choice. A Florida man has been arrested for allegedly biting a female taxi driver on the arm after trying to kiss her arm. Newport Ritchie police say 29-year-old Kyle McCormick had just left a strip club when the attack occurred and that he has since spat out a full confession. In Holmes Beach, Florida, meanwhile, police say they've found the rightful owner of an ear, an ear that washed up on the beach. It is an extremely good replica of a human ear, an artificial ear made completely of rubber. A man from Beaufort, South Carolina, says he was trying to put his artificial ear into his pocket when a wave knocked it out of his hand. Prosthetic ears can cost thousands of dollars. The Holmes Beach, Florida Police Department has dropped it in the mail. It's what goes into ears that was the center of a dispute at the extreme northwestern part of the country in Yakima, Washington. An appeals court has upheld the $40,000 awarded by a jury to a woman who said her neighbor revved his truck engine and set off its alarm to try to drown out her students' piano lessons. The truck owner was ordered to pay the woman forty grand for emotional distress. Now, tales from the road. In Vermont, a man's been arrested for allegedly stealing more than two dozen street signs from two towns over two months. Reporters have been unable to find his home address. It happened on the last Sunday in June when Google Maps offered this detour to avoid an accident on Pena Boulevard. A hundred drivers headed for Denver International Airport suddenly found themselves lost and stranded on a muddy dirt road thanks to a wacky mix-up at Google Maps. And in Nevada, the highway patrol stopped a hearse while it was transporting a dead body. 
The driver was using the high occupancy lane, counting the corpse as a passenger. The Nevada Highway Patrol wants you to know that doesn't count. But in White Oaks, New Mexico, there's a saloon where you will find sharp disagreements, but with, wait for it, old-fashioned civility. You will find at the No Scum Allowed Saloon extreme liberals and extreme conservatives who talk politics and never let it get ugly. No arguments. It's all about dialogue and respect. Some of the regulars come from miles away. Why are political disagreements so peaceful in a bar so full of political opposites? We help each other out, says one customer, adding, it's desolate out here. And 93-year-old Pam Smith, 93 years old, arrested by police in Greater Manchester, England this week. She hadn't broken any laws, and at 93, she's very, very ill. She was arrested because after, in her words, being good all her life, that was her dying wish. She says the police who granted her wish and gently put her into the handcuffs had made her very, very happy. Quoting the elderly Ms. Smith, I had a lovely day. And finally, in Alabama, police have finally nabbed 35-year-old Mickey Polk, who's been a fugitive ever since he rammed an investigator's vehicle. But Polk was also wanted on multiple warrants for allegedly terrorizing a community with a squirrel he'd named Deez Nuts. Polk allegedly trained the squirrel to attack people and fed it amphetamines to kick up the carnage. Police caught up with Polk and his squirrel at a motel in Killen, Alabama, unequipped to test the squirrel for amphetamines. The local police simply released these nuts into the wild. An attack squirrel on the loose, jonesing for speed. What could possibly go wrong? I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.